Good evening and welcome to the June 14th, 2023 uh, meeting of the Board of Trustees. Um, Madam Clerk, would you please call the roll? Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Is not here yet. Trustee Chapman. Here. Trustee Esteem. Here. Trustee Fox. Yes. Trustee Friedman. Yeah. Trustee Obligacion. Here. Trustee Sign. Here. And Trustee Slendoria. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you. And so we'll open for, we uh, do have a few for public comments. Oh, please note that Trustee Bukit is here. Um, so uh, we will be, these are public comments for the non-agenda items, and you have two minutes for each of you. Clerk will call your name up. So would you go ahead and call the first one up? First up is Larry Barden. I respectfully ask that uh, apparently one of the other speakers has not shown my thing here. It might take a little bit more than two minutes, but not that much more. Can I read the whole thing, please? Go ahead. We'll, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll start. Start. Thank you. So my name is Larry Barden, as you already heard. I'm a neurosurgery PA. 435 days ago, I was placed on paid administrative leave by the UCSF contracted neurosurgeons. Now, for more than 14 months, the taxpayers of Alameda County have been paying me not to work. As I told you last month, BHS investigated my case and determined I did nothing wrong, but the UCSF contracted neurosurgeons decided they don't have to believe what AHS says. And they told the medical staff department that they didn't feel like supervising me anymore. This led to the suspension of my clinical privileges, which led to the revocation of my medical staff appointment, which in turn has caused AHS to initiate termination proceedings against me. On June 5th, I got a letter from James Jackson thanking me for my service and wishing me the best of luck in my future endeavors. I do not wish to be terminated. As of today, I am still assigned to neurosurgery and I am ready to go back to work. To that end, on June 8th, I submitted a grievance to, to my department chief, Dr. Victorino, under Article G, Section 1 of the Alameda Health System APP Policy and Procedure Manual, outlining the improper behavior of the neurosurgeons that led to this situation. And I waited for a response. 30 seconds. At 4 p.m. today, the postman delivered me a certified letter from the chief of the medical staff informing me that my, that my termination from the medical staff was because AHS hadn't assigned me a supervising position and not because I did anything wrong medically. Therefore, I have no grounds for a hearing. This is bigger than my individual situation. It reveals a systemic problem of institutional gridlock, contract and clinicians who refuse to honor the negotiated agreements between AHS and its workforce have created an unprecedented problem that HR and the medical staff leadership both claim they are powerless to resolve. It's jeopardizing patient care and human clinician burnout. And by refusing to address this gridlock, Alameda Health System has annihilated my career as a physician assistant. Thank you. Uh, next up is Benjamin Fisher and then McKenna Wu. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, thank you for having me here today. My name is Benjamin Fisher. I'm an activity therapist over at John George Psychiatric Hospital. I've been working at the hospital for over six years. I used to work on the floor as a mental health specialist. So where this comes from, honestly, it comes from a place of talking directly with patients and being there hand in hand and helping people do all the things that our patients go through 
every single day. So I hope you understand that as well. Um, this is the second time that I've been here. I'm a recent steward with the union. Uh, we came here last year with significantly more people. And we come here to you again today, speaking about essentially the same issues, unfortunately. Uh, Troy can speak to how long we've been dealing with these issues going around decades. Um, we are still dealing with chronic short staffing, which is a reality for a lot of hospitals. We understand that. Um, and at the same time, there's a lack of action. Um, I'm recently sitting in on meetings with our leadership and our teams, and there's just a lot of talk going on, and there's not a lot of action going forward. I'm going to keep repeating that word because that's very important for me today is action. I love talking about things, but I want to see things being put into place. And that's really what I'm asking for today is accountability um, from our leadership team, just like they asked from us as well. Uh, we have gone through all the, the hospital protocols. We've gone up the chain of command. We were here last year as a large group. Um, and so what we're asking for is the trustees is, will you be a part of making John George better with us? We have leaders there. I've been through, in my seven years, I've been through three different administrations, I think. I might be overestimating. But it's been the same, same show. It's, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of issues around um, our safety on the floor, about communication with staff, about what things are going on. And we're just not seeing it. And so clearly what I'm asking for you today is, will you please come down and be a part of making John George better? Will you be a part of holding our leadership team, who I think has a good heart, but I don't know if we're well equipped enough to deal with the issues at John George? I'm asking you, everybody here today, if you will please come down and see what's going on, see what we're going through, so that you can have a real idea of what we're, what we're seeing from a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you for your time. Thank you. McKenna um, Woon and then Troy Nixon. Hey, I'm McKenna Wunit. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you yes. hear me? We can. Hi. Yes. yes. Um, my name is McKenna Woon, and I'm a registered nurse at John George. I'm also here to discuss the high number of assaults and safety at John George. Um, safety is a huge issue. The union has met with management um, regarding safety each week, and like Ben said, there hasn't been much improvement. In fact, just last week, two separate assaults occurred on my unit, and two different patients assaulted two of my coworkers by grabbing and ripping their hair out. Um, and these, my coworkers had to like leave and go to the hospital. Um, these events occurred on different days. So some of, I like to highlight some of the actions and behaviors currently demonstrated by leadership and how they might impact safety. Um, communication management is difficult. It can feel pointless at times to express concerns about unit safety because either nothing is done about it or management reacts defensively or even hostily. This reaction is not supportive and does not address the concerns about the unsafe work environment. Also, I'd like to note that policies are different on each inpatient unit and can be unclear from shift to shift. It can be confusing for staff who are floating and even more confusing for the patients that we serve that reside on these units. This lack of structure and inconsistency can cause patients to become agitated, which can lead to assaults and the staff being the target. Um, leadership and administration also perpetrate uh, workplace violence. We are already the front line for verbal threats, hostility, and physical assault from our patients. To receive this behavior from leadership as well is also disheartening and contributes to staff burnout. I know there are multiple reports against the same perpetrators of workplace violence, yet it seems like nothing is done about it and they remain in positions of power. Inaction is an action, and this action shows that staff, that our voices do not matter. Um, ben just mentioned that we are short-staffed, and maybe the reasons that I mentioned may contribute to why we are so short-staffed. It's no wonder that staff don't want to come in on their days off or might call out or even find employment elsewhere. 
Um, I do believe that John George have a negative reputation in the public, making it difficult to find good staff. And I believe addressing these concerns that I have mentioned will improve staff satisfaction and retention, improve patient satisfaction, improve quality of care, and reduce assaults. I'm really tired of watching my coworkers be assaulted, and I don't know if y'all have heard someone be assaulted. It's horrific. So please come help us change the culture at John George. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Troy Nixon and then BJ Wilson. Good evening. My name is Troy Nixon. I'm a nurse at John George PES for the past 30 years and a shop steward for SEIU 1021. And with all the growing problems we face related to safety, staffing, and most recently broken air conditioning system, it seems like I have the same problem too right now. We found that our leadership are not able to rise to meet our many challenges, and I believe it's because we have no system in place to address leadership failures. But we have but we have a system in place before staff. Leadership basically basically cannot leadership basically can be lousy at their job and face face no consequences. Our last board of trustees and CEO were ineffective and was removed after it took staff going out on strike for about a week. I'd like to see this board play an active and vigilant role with the supervision and oversight of the executive leadership to ensure that they are doing their job and if not, there should be consequences. We should learn from the past. Um, that includes holding middle management um, accountable for their failures to live up to their expect expectation as well. Our mission statement of caring, healing, teaching, serving all has become a cliche because we're not living up to this commitment. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Nixon. Uh, Mr. B.J. Wilson. B.J. Wilson and then Maria Betancourt. Maria Betancourt and then Tawanda. Hello, my name is Maria Betancourt. I work at John George Psychiatric Hospital as a specialist clerk. I'm also an SEIU shop steward. I came here today as a representative of the SEIU employees at John George to express to you all that we don't have trust or any confidence in the current John George administration and leadership. We came to this board a year ago to ask for your help with it, with the assault crisis at John George for help with our chronic short staffing, both of which keep us all unsafe. An entire year has gone by and the situation at John George has only gotten worse. When we came to talk to this board last year, we told you about the over 250 assaults on staff and the critical short staffing. Will we continue to suffer short staffing and assaults on, almost, on an almost daily basis? The most recent assault numbers we have received from the CEO of John George Patty um, have us at 243 assaults in the last seven months between July 2022 and February 2023. By now I'm sure we've passed the 250 assaults of the previous year and we still have five more months of data to add to December. I don't know if Patty Espeson, the CEO of John George, has presented to this board, but if she has, I doubt she has presented the assault numbers. In any case, and in case I'm wrong, and she has presented, I want to warn you to not be fooled by the way she presents the assault numbers. In meetings between SEIU and John George leadership, the CEO likes to downplay by making misleading and dishonest statements about the severity of the assaults to minimize what's actually happening on the John George campus. 30 seconds. I want you to know that assaults are serious. We have broken noses, broken ribs, to the point where people are just taking beatings, to the point where they're urinating on themselves during the beating. What I want the board to do, I mean, it's I want to hold leadership management accountable, which is the role of this board of trustees. We're here to re-invite you all to come to John George, to make John George a priority, to assign a board member as a point person to John George, 
so that we can make a plan to address the chronic problems. We ask you to reach out to, to Shane Reese and schedule a meeting. Please make this a priority. Thank you. Thank you. Any, any other? Uh, to Wanda and then Ben. Hello, my name is Tawanda Gilbert, and I am a uh, mental health specialist on the floor at John George. Been John George for six years. Also, SEIU shop store, and I'm from the community of the community of Alameda County. So what I want to do is talk to you to let you know the population that we serve. We serve those who you see walking the streets with schizophrenia that's talking to themselves. We serve those that you see on the news that's at the BART station that they need to be able to get calmed down. They come to John George. We have no way of saying who we can and cannot accept that come through our door. We're dealing with a lot of dual diagnosis patients. We're dealing with a fentanyl crisis and nobody is even talking about that and preparing for that because Gavin Newsom and London Breed, they already trying to get that area cleaned up and where are they gonna come? Straight over here, over to the bank. We have patients that tell us once they come to their baseline, we come to Alameda County, Oakland, San Leandro, San Francisco, because we are told this is where the best drugs are at. We need your help. We need you guys to give us the resources to be able to take care of these patients. Not only that, but as they stated about management, we're already dealing with trauma. And then they're putting more trauma on us. So it's like being beat down when you're trying to do your best with the resources that we have. We have to think out of the box to be able to take care of these patients. If the AC back is down, we have 40 patients in there. It's hot like this. Imagine 60 people in a room like this. And that system was down for almost a month. They're not telling the truth in regards to a lot of things. Things are being hidden and we have to suffer. And when patients are angry, who are they gonna take it out on? The floor staff. I have invited after every meeting, management to come and take a walk in my shoes so they can see what I'm dealing with to be able to be the best person that I can be and give the best care. And when I leave John George, guess what? I see the patients in the streets. Thank you, Ms. Um, ben Fisher and then Amanda Rodriguez. I believe that was me, but we, I got to clue it on there twice. I'm sorry, what? I was included on there twice. Oh, sorry about that. Um, Amanda Rodriguez and then Shawana Avery. Amanda, are you on Zoom? Yes, I am. Sorry about that. Ms. Rodriguez, yes. We can hear you now. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Um, I'm a mental health specialist in uh, John George and inpatient unit B. Um, I just kind of wanted to piggyback off a little bit about what Tawanda was speaking of in regards to um, the, the, the people that we are working close with in the community and the difficulties that, you know, we come across. Uh, we're just, you know, health staff, you know, but the, the type of things that we are experiencing in regards to assault. And in regards to, you know, us not having the staffing appropriate we need for when, you know, sometimes, you know, we have a higher acuity than, than, than other groups and it's, it's constantly fluctuating, you know, that is, we, we, we never know, you know, how bad it will be. And in those cases, when we have lack of staff or when we need additional staff, because we are dealing with 
uh, a group of patients that we will get who are we we're working with several you know several days all day these people need all around care 24 you know all day all night and when we don't have the appropriate staffing in those hours and you know we we, we are people too we have families and some of us have been injured i've i have been assaulted uh, not that long ago as well by a male patient who should be on a uh, only male uh, staff one-to-one and because we don't have the appropriate appropriate staff I was assaulted I was you know hit in the face and you know I have to come back and continue to work with this patient the very next day you know and I have a family to come home to we have when we are here trying to you know come in and, and and do the best we can in what we do because we are a special kind of uh health we are different you know like Tawanda said we are the ones uh, you know, working with this community who have nowhere else to go in, you know, in, uh, in, in regards to being incarcerated on the streets, everywhere, you know, so uh, if we can have more support and how to defend ourselves by helping with the security staff work more closely with the healthcare because this is new and it needs a little bit more help to help us, uh, you know, I think that there's just a lot more if you would come and see that means that it, it, it is without question, you know, you just have to observe. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Rodriguez. Uh, next is Shaywana Avery, then Joseph Timbang, and then I have another McKenna on here, but I'm not sure if it's the same. Okay, got it. So uh, Shaywana and then Joseph. Yes, hi. Um, can everybody hear me? Yes. Um, hi, I'm Shaywana Avery. I'm calling from, I mean, I work at John George and I work in the PES department, the the um, emergency department. Um, yes, I'm picking back on all my coworkers about the safety and what's going on at John George. Um, here it is. It's like sometimes I'll go to, I leave from work dealing with 46 patients, and sometimes we don't even have enough food and snacks, and that starts patients to be angry against staff, saying that we are lying, and that's making them walking up on staff to where we. We, we can't even defend ourselves because it's like if we touch them or, or however, we getting, we getting on a, a, a administrative leave because we getting assaulted. I'm, I've been at John George for three years. Here it is. I have been assaulted. This is my um, second or third assault from um, at John George. My assault happened on April 13th of this year. And then a week later on April 20th, I got assaulted again. Again, if I'm I'm really preaching about safety there because it's like like I said, management can say whatever they want to say in their office, but when they come on the floor and really deal with these patients the way that we do, then they can understand what all the staff is coming from, you know. And again, like I say, we go, we get assaulted, we go to the doctors, come back, and we gotta be right back on that floor to deal with the same patients every day. Nothing changed as far as what, what management is saying about whatever's going on at John George. They are completely telling stories. It's not that. We really need help and we really need somebody to come in there and observe what's going on at John George because at the end of the day, we have families we have to go home to just like everybody else do. And again, safety is a very, and, and short staff is a very point of view of John George. Thank you. Thank you so much. And then Joseph is our last non-agenda item speaker. Joseph, uh, last name? Uh, Joseph Timbang. Are you on? 
Can you say the name one more time? Joseph Timbe. <laughs> Um, and uh, thank you. Your, uh, I want, we wanted to acknowledge that your thank you for giving us this feedback. It's very valuable. And you know that in this format, we cannot respond to you directly. But please know that for those of you joining us via Zoom and for you here that we take your input very seriously and we'll be considering that. Thank you again for making it. All right. Uh, moving on to our first item, which is our executive officer's report. And um, I, this, the article that we have, emotional safety and patient, uh, emotional safety is patient safety, was shared by Trustee Estine. And I would invite you to uh, share. Thank you. Perspectives. I'm sorry that they're leaving. I think that they would appreciate this article quite a bit because as we talk about safety measures, quality, patient safety, uh, oftentimes the metrics that we use, this article really does a deep dive, and I didn't know this at the time. One of the authors used to work here at AHS, Ooh. Karen Scott. Um, I think she's an OBGYN. And she gave a discussion about the traditional patient safety measures being fair, but not adequate. And as we think about uh, emotional safety, caring for the caregivers, the way that we deal with vicarious trauma and real trauma that our staff and patients undergo day by day from being marginalized in the community or even in the healthcare setting, that there are other uh, less, the way that metrics work doesn't always work when we talk about emotional safety. So I find that this article is quite uh, inviting to think about a creative way to imagine measures and success. Thank you so much. To hear from other folks that they had a chance to read the article. Thoughts, comments? Yeah, I thought it was a great article, a great selection. And you know, uh, as I say, you can never challenge someone on how they feel. I, I, I agree with the concept that the dashboards we do are necessary, but they're not adequate to, to fulfill what we need to do. You know, uh, when we talk about Steve Berwick called patient-centeredness the most subversive of all these, uh, of all the quality metrics, because it's not really how we do that sort of manifested in our True North metric dashboard. We're doing the right things, but we're really getting to the heart of do our patients really feel safe? Because it's the first letter in steep. And I, I think that's really, really, uh, I, I think this is, I think it's a great article. How do we measure these things? You know, maybe it's just a question do you feel safe in our environment? Because without safety, there is no quality. And my last thing is, I, I, I you know, uh, William Osler is uh, kind of the father of American medicine. We all kind of do his oaths. And he said one thing, which are the words of, that I first heard when I put on the white coat, the goals of medicine to cure sometimes, to comfort always. And uh, the comfort goes to the feeling of safety. So I think this was a great article. Thanks, Trustee. Thank you. I think you, you reminded me of the, the two metrics were being safe and feeling, feeling safe, safe. Yeah. right and it's that it i think that uh, as we move through our organizational goals there are certain outcomes that we can measure as a standard of excellence and when we take the next step that's how you go from the the metrics we currently use to the the higher level metrics that you know sometimes people say we want to aspire to and that's the that's really the handle 
Now, in our defense, we, one of our metrics is likelihood of recommending, right? So it's, it's subtly implied in there, but it's not as over. I think it's a great question. Do you feel safe in this environment? Yeah. I and think our metrics for uh, patients <laughs> perceiving courtesy, feeling that they, have, they are facing courtesy and respect, we are at the 15th to 17th percentile for that. And for the last 10 years, our patient experience uh, metrics have not changed. So the, you would think that courtesy and respect is kind of low-hanging fruit. You yeah. should be able to it's do free. that. It, it should be easy to do. And yet we are at the 15th to 17th percentile for that. I remember what uh, Trustee Fox said when we were talking at the retreat about the True North metrics and <coughs> metrics. I wonder, these are the metrics that we think of quality. I wonder if patients had some say into what the metrics should be, what would they say? So I'm going to, um, any other comments, questions? Uh, I think the article is a great article. It was right on. What we think is a successful outcome for a, a successful stay isn't necessarily what the patient is worried about. Even something as mundane as, is my car going to get towed? You know, and, and they're sitting there in the bed or in the exam room or wherever, worrying if their car is going to get towed. And nobody's thinking about that. Who's, who's interacting with them. So. Well, one of the things that struck me about the article, particularly this the bit about obstetrics, <coughs> the history of things that are going on in that space, and you think about well, I, I know there's some technicality about our being governmental in the eyes of the people that come here. We're a kind of government-backed institution. And when I went to graduate school, one of the first things we learned studying healthcare is that it's a method of social control in a lot of the world. You know, so we have this control over people. So I think for an institution like ours, it's particularly important that we're sensitive to people's autonomy and their feelings of autonomy. And I think we do need to find a way to explore this that goes a little deeper than just what we survey now, maybe on a, on a smaller basis. It was something you could find a way to study. Maybe an interesting piece of work if we could find some people who want to work with us on that. So I really something to that. Yeah. Any other else? I, I, I have an email from Dr. Evan Russo, how when they did the bridge, they shared that they did a lot of patient interviews and he said that we have a history of really not asking our patients very much. And I wonder if I can pull that up, but he, um, he had just such incredible um, words about how we, how we could be doing so much more in terms of, you know, asking our patients. Um, and so these are his words, let me just say, uh, he said, there are so many ways we can and should integrate the voices of our patients into our practice as a system. American healthcare has almost always taken a deficit stand towards patient experts provide care, which patients are lucky to receive and sometimes lack, uh, we think they lack the health uh, literacy to use. In reality, our patients are as complex, opinionated and capable as any of us, but we have designed and implemented a product that is too expensive, irrelevant, confusing, and are inconvenient for them to use or navigate. Putting patient voices at the center of care means grappling with the duality of us doing our best, but still providing services that don't meet their needs, of overworking but not being available, of expanding access while sometimes worsening disparities. As the folks said over and over again in our interviews, 
we can really only achieve better outcomes for people when we work with those people, when we work with them. There are virtually no venues at AHS currently that integrate patient voices into programming. The people in our interviews gave their time because they believe and hope we can do better for them. And I think those are words as we are thinking about so many other ways to be doing that. But as of now, we still don't have really um, in, integrated a system of that. And I could go on and on about the obstetric case because that is where I've spent 30 years of my life. And I know just how um, unequal um, maternal child, infant child health here in this nation is because it's designed to get those outcomes. So again, excellent choice. Thank you uh, for sharing that Rusty's team. Moving on, our item B is a CEO report calling in from Atlanta. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for being with us on a very um, important week for your family. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chair Banerjee, trustees, and um, yes, um, and staff who are here this evening. Um, Rana is pulling up my presentation, and um, it's always a, a pleasure to be with you and to have the opportunity to share. So um, next slide, please. As usual, I start with a moment of gratitude. And this is a, a card that was specifically about care that was received at within one of our institutions at the Wilmachan Highland Hospital. We received this last month, um, and it reads, um, my father, Richard Tiverton, I believe, spent a week at Highland Hospital shortly before he passed away in April on the 11th. His character hospital was excellent. He was there after a fall, and although he was at the end of his life, you patched him up so I could have a few more conversations with him before he died. I am eternally grateful to all those who helped care for him. Thank you, and it's signed by Amy. And I just, I think this, obviously there are always opportunities, but this really captures to me the essence of, of what our organization is about. And I'm honored to have the opportunity to share this with you. Next slide, please. Moving into um, our standard um, pillars of uh, our strategic plan that I present from. Next slide, please. Moving to our staff and physician experience pillar. And I wanted to share about an event that happened during um, the hospital week. Um, yeah, next slide, please. Um, there was a luau that um, Richard Espinoza and his leadership team put together at Park Bridge. And again, this is a part of um, celebrating the staff and recognizing them for their work. And so giving them the opportunity to break bread and have some fun together. Next slide, please. And so we have a few few pictures of the staff in their um, luau attire, um, just celebrating. And, and they did this with the residents there at Park Bridge. And so it was just a very festive event um, and just really brings joy, I think, certainly to the residents, but also to our staff. Next slide, please. Yeah. So some of our staff, you can see they're doing a little selfie there in addition to wearing their fun attire. Um, and I think a good time was had by all. I know Richard's on the line. Richard, is there anything that you would share about this event and the celebration you had there? You're muted, Richard. Ah, yeah. There we go, thanks. Um, yeah, I was part of our uh, nursing home celebration and all sites had some kind of activities throughout the week and they just had a blast interacting with the residents and 
residents had hula skirts on as well and were dancing together. So just uh, a really good um, time had by all. And uh, Ada, our administrator, brought in a, um, a, a, a pig that had been roasted for the team. So they just had, a, it was a real luau indeed. So yeah, great time. Thanks, James. Oh, thank you, Richard. And we've acknowledged that our post-acute facilities are, are five-star. Um, that is the objective measure that um, indicates that they're providing superior care. But I think Richard, Ada, Christine, and the others on the team there are really providing an environment that is really conducive for the patients, but also the residents, but also for the staff. And that is what leads to the great outcomes that we consistently see from our post-acute team. So uh, kudos and thank you, Richard, to you and your team. Next slide, please. We've talked about this and I won't belabor it. This I extracted from a publication of the America's Essential Hospitals. And so although trustees, you've already heard about the fact that we have um, Dr. Joshi as well as Emil Amini who are um, currently participating, this is a write-up. And I just felt like it was important for you to see kind of the history of this fellows program and you know what the intent is. And in the third paragraph, it notes, this helps the next generation of essential hospital leaders grow as effective and passionate voices for their patients, community and hospital. Um, and this is from the Vice President of Innovation and Director of Essential Hospitals Institute, which is the association's research, education and leadership development arm. So we are really proud that we consistently have um, our physicians and our administrators who are participating in this work as we really continue to strive to be the best um, at providing care to those that we are honored to serve. Next slide, please. And I've talked to you about my rounding before, and I just wanted to share this. Um, this is an, an outgrowth of the rounding. And so um, a couple of months ago, while I was in the Wilmachan Highland Hospital same-day surgery area, it was just to clear, as you look at the picture on the right, that the floor was um, not satisfactory. It was not an environment that any of us would want to get care in. And so working with the facilities team led by Mark Fratsky and, of course, Ro Lofton, um, we were able, and, and James, um, um, we were able to um, identify funds and have that floor. You can see the tiles on the left, they were removed. We put down a, a rolled good, which looks dramatically better. And so um, this is the importance of getting out and spending time in the rounding. And so I just wanted to give you this specific anecdotal. I, I will also note that I will be at John George on the 20th of this month. I may move that up given what we heard earlier this evening, but um, you know, I just think it's terribly important to be present because when I hear comments like administration doesn't care, administration isn't present, that's certainly not my reality. It's not my understanding, but I'm sensitive to the fact that people say that and I will be there. And I'm, I'm assuring you as trustees that all of our management team will be there. And um, so this is an anecdotal, but it's a specific that is the outgrowth of the rounding and what we can do to make sure that we're providing the best resources and the best facilities to provide the best care. Next slide, please. Next slide, please, Rana. She's working on it. Okay. I have, I have gone to the next slide. It's just, there's a... Aha, little time lapse. Yeah, okay. Um, this is um, just a narrative and I, I won't read it to you, but we have um, for the past few years 
had the honor of having our Highland Emergency Medicines residents participate um, in what's a, an event called Sim Wars. And it's kind of, you know, I describe it, this may not be the most apt description, but it's kind of jeopardy for um, emergency staff. They are given um, scenarios, they're given conundrums of patient care, and they work together um, to diagnose and come up with a treatment plan. And our team consistently does extraordinarily well. And so this is an opportunity to just acknowledge those individuals who participated, um, Dr. Solomon, Mullings, Friedman, and Adapali. And uh, along the way, they expertly managed cases of carbon monoxide poisoning, hypotensive diabetic ketoacidosis, and posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. So I can barely say it. And they're in there <laughs> diagnosing this at the off, the off the cuff, and they're fantastic. And so terribly proud of them and the work that they're doing. Uh, next slide, please. Which is a photograph, I believe, of our team. Yes. And so that's our team there at the event. And just, uh, you know, they've got a little photo bomber in the background there, but our team uh, in the midst of this wonderful event showing off what they've learned. So very proud of them. Next slide, please. Um, quickly, you've seen this before, but we continue to round. Um, I and the executive team are out and about. And um, I had the pleasure of being at Hayward Wellness yesterday. I had some really great interactions with staff and I look forward to the opportunity to be at John George. I believe that Jeanette Dong is gonna be joining me for that one. And I welcome, if there are trustees who would like to join, I would more than welcome you to come and be present on the 20th when I'm at John George. Next slide, please. Oops, Moving to sustainability. Uh, I'm gonna spend a little bit of time talking about something that came up in finance committee. And so um, Dr. Minnie Swift was really great in helping me come up with specific um, examples of how we're using our equity tool to help drive decisions as an organization. And so I'm not going to go into too much detail on these next slides, but I just wanted the trustees to have this. You'll receive this and you can look at it in more detail. But um, if you go to the next slide, it really talks about how we are using the equity tool, the questions that are in the equity tool. Um, you can see here. Um, next slide, please. Um, this is the purpose, what we believe the indications are, and then a little bit of the history of how the equity tool was developed and um, people are being trained on it. And then obviously putting it into use on a daily basis to help our dri drive our decision-making process. Next slide. So where has it been um, used since approval? Um, we've used it to develop inclusive membership and you can see our community health worker work group um, equity analytics work group, which is a subcommittee of our HETI, um, our land acknowledgement work room, also a subcommittee of HETI. It's used in population health as well as in our EPMO and then in our strategy department intake process as we're looking at new um, iterative projects that we think are um, important to integrate into our strategic plan. Next slide, please. James, can I just uh, uh, add a comment here? Yes, please. So if you move to the previous slide, uh, so this tool was brought by the Cancer Collaborative. And so I know I'm part of both the Cancer Collaborative design team, uh, <coughs> the next slide please, uh, Rona, and as well as the land acknowledgement work group over there. 
And so I think what we want to make sure is that the things that bubble up from those committees, because these are, when you're thinking equity, we are getting survivors, we are getting community members, we are getting, uh, you know, peer community-based organizations, extremely sophisticated input that they bring in and sometimes uh, uh, that they have to bubble up and, uh, you know, see that happening. Otherwise, people get very fatigued of giving advice if it doesn't go anywhere. So I'm glad that this is being used. And the plug I want to make put is that it then uh, makes its way up and sees some fruition. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chair Banerjee. Well said. Um, if we can move forward. Um, this is extraordinarily detailed, but this is the governance chart that we use <coughs> and how it moves through um, the, the various um, decision points to uh, um, help drive our decision process. And you can see who the leaders are um, responsible for the governance of this, um, the Smart Management Action Results Team, um, Strategic Management, which is our SMART team. Next slide, please. Yeah. And this is in the strategy department, the intake process. And so you can see the flow diagram of how it works and you can see where the tool is integrated into all of the decision processes that are made by the strategy department intake process. Uh, next slide, please. And then this is again, a flow chart. So you can see how decisions are moving through the organization and where the equity tool is being utilized. Next slide, please. And this is the EPMO, again, where allowing you to get a sense of where the equity tool is, you know, it's kind of central to the work that they're doing and it's an element of all of their decision processes. Next slide. Moving to our community connection, we've talked about the, the, the Soul of Spring event where we honored um, Colleen Chavla on behalf of the Healthcare Services Agency and um, also um, Scott Coffin and given the Lifetime Achievement Award. So terribly pleased and proud of our collaboration with our community partners. And so this event was fantastic. And we have a few slides that are just some pictures that I wanted to share with the trustees. So next slide, please. Um, Mark, Amy, you know I had to do this, but you can see obviously a, a fantastic group. You've got um, Dr. Swift with her husband uh, there on the left. And then the extraordinarily well-dressed man, Mark, Amy, um, Dr. Tornabene, Dr. Mack, Richard, and his husband, uh, Miguel. It was just lovely to have the group. And of course, Sean um, um, from here on in the background, photobombing them. Um, but it was just a lovely event. Um, people came out and had a wonderful time. Next slide, please. Um, that is our own Marilyn Boston with her husband, Ron, and with um, Patrice Russian, who was the guest uh, performer that evening. Next slide, please. And we had a great, um, it was an Afro um, dance troupe that came in at the very beginning and um, essentially kind of christened the event, and it was just lovely. Um, so really, really pleased about that. Next slide, please. And uh, Patrice Russian had him up. You can see the crowd was having a fantastic time as she was giving us uh, her greatest hit. So a good time was had by all. Next slide, please. Ah, and that, I think that's a nice one because it gives you a sense of the room and the atmosphere. Um, just really a, a wonderful event. So kudos to Preston Walton and the foundation team and obviously our foundation board. Um, thank them for their vision to deliver such an event and allow us to uplift such critical programs. Next slide, please. 
Yesterday we had our first farmer's market and um, I didn't tell her I was going to do this, but you have the data on the farmer's market, which I know you've heard from me previously. I'd like to ask Jeanette Dong if she just take a minute and share some of the anecdotal feedback that she received after the event yesterday. Jeanette, would you be kind enough to take a moment? Sure. Um, we've got, we had great feedback. I did talk to many people who came to the farmer's market, just random. I just asked people, what did they think about the event? Would you come back next Tuesday? Because we're, we're Jeanette, you're cutting out, I, I think. Hmm. Mark, Amy, I can see you. Will you raise a hand if you can hear me okay? Okay, so I think Jeanette, there may be, there may be something with Jeanette's connection. So um, I just wanted her to share some of the anecdotal comments that she received, um, but it was just lovely. Um, Well-attended event, the, the folks who were there providing the produce said that they had really great um, feedback. They, they got a lot of revenue and so they were pleased. And so if we have more events like that going forward, I think this farmer's market is gonna be a fantastic um, hit for the organization. And obviously our intent is to take it to other facilities within the system. Next slide, please. Ron, are we still dealing with a little bit of time lapse there? And Exactly. Were you able to visit? Oh, I, I was not available, unfortunately. Okay. But I heard great things from the staff. Thank um, you, yeah. Um, Rana, are we stuck on that slide or are you able to move forward? I think I can move forward. Sorry, my little fox here died for a minute and I think that may be what happened, but it seems to be back now. Ah, there we go. Okay. And trustees, that's, that's my report. And so I welcome your comments and your questions. Thank you, James. I wanted to give a shout out to Jeanette Don again for that EPMO thing. We we kind of whipped through it very fast, but this was a presentation done at Hedy, and I think I, it would be helpful to bring it to the board uh, at some time to understand like just the process of how you're using that to make sure that projects, decisions are again having that lens uh, fiscally, mission-wise, in, in many layers of it. I'm, I might want to bring my colleague Mark Amy with me since I am from strategy is kind of the top portion of the diagram and mm -hmm. the bottom portion of the diagram is EPMO. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Questions, comments? What was the best fruit that day? <laughs> stone fruit. Yeah, it's good stone fruit time, right? Yeah, the berry, the berry truck had a flat tire, so they won't be here till next time. Thank you all. Thank you, James. Uh, moving on, our next item on the agenda is the medical staff reports. And so I'll invite Dr. Lee to start first. Go ahead, Dr. Lee. Oh, your, your line is mute. Yes, I apologize. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm here to present the AHS MEC report as well as the Alameda Hospital report for Dr. Nikita Joshi. Um, since she's away at the Fellowship for America's Essential Hospitals Leadership. Um, I'll start with the AHS report. 
for our community, congratulations to the AHS leadership on the establishment of a new farmer's market for staff and patients at the Boma Chan Highland Hospital campus. It is so invigorating to have events like this to bring the services of our community members, like our BIPOC farmers, to staff and patients. Uh, for quality, we approved documents for the AHS and AH medical staffs, including privilege forms for addiction medicine providers, hospitalist multi-facility, and the orthopedic surgery multi-facility form. Our graduate medical education committee completed requirements of the ACGME. The committee continues to focus on resident well-being and establishing capacity to meet resident mental health needs. There are also efforts to recruit diverse faculty as well as build research capacity that is housed under the GME umbrella. Under staff and patient experience, the AHS medical staff looks forward to the fulfillment of the positions of chair of emergency medicine and the chair of orthopedic surgery. We continue our work in our search committee for the chair of imaging and radiology. And we launched our search committee for the chair of psychiatry department after thanking Dr. Tanuj Siddhartha for his fearless leadership over the last five years. He plans to step down at the end of this month. For sustainability, the Department of Surgery report was presented by Dr. Victorino. He spoke about system integration of general surgery services at all three sites. The American College of Surgeons level one trauma re-verification is due April of 2024. And he also talked about trauma activation that have steadily increased year after year to greater than 3,500 in 2022. There is work and plans to optimize operating room utilization and staffing at San Leandro Hospital and Alameda Hospital. And they anticipate a new SPD unit at San Leandro Hospital slated for completion in 2024. That is the end of my AHF report and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Does everyone know what SPD is? Cell processing. Cell processing, distribution. Distribution, okay. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Did you guys want to go with the Alameda Hospital one? Great. Yes, um, so like, thanks. Uh, so like I said, Dr. Nikita Joshi is at the Fellowship for America's Essential Hospitals. And so I'll be presenting her report. Um, for community, the Alameda Hospital medical staff looks forward to the annual city July 4th parade and hopes to be joined by many AHS staff and providers. Uh, for quality, the med staff approved multi-facility forms, including privilege forms mentioned in my earlier report, as well as policies and procedures and credentialing and privileging of practitioners and HIV AIDS specialists. The Alameda Hospital HCAPS performance score for doctors' communication was 76%. And under sustainability, the Alameda Hospital med staff continues to participate in discussions for contingency plans and operational needs in relation to the chiller at Alameda Hospital in case of extreme weather this summer. That is the end of the Alameda Hospital report and I will try to answer any questions. Thank you, Dr. Lee. And uh, congratulations to Dr. Joshi for her selection of this in the fellowship. And uh, I'm also thrilled to see the policies and procedures of the two hospital being now, uh, you know, Alameda Hospital and AHS being uh, combined. So that is another huge step forward. I know that's taken a lot of work and you let go let some of this work, Dr. Lee? Um, I know I have to give the credit to our previous chief of staff where the major transitions happened during that time, but we, I continue to do this work. 
with our medical staff officers. So thank you. And I will be sure to convey your message. Thank you. Questions, comments? Other uh, thing, what is uppermost on your mind as you uh, represent the, uh, the full physician community and in terms of quality or in terms of resources? Um, I think top of my mind right now is just ensuring that our medical staff providers really feel, um, you know, satisfied with their work and rewarded for the work that they're doing. And so I want to ensure that I'm responsive to their needs and questions. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Dr. Zali. Hi, good evening. I'll uh, thank you for having me. Uh, for the San Leandro Leadership Committee, uh, we have a new uh, perioperative manager, Trudy Grief, who was welcomed at our, at our uh, last meeting under the quality and sustainability pillar. There was a uh, focused discussion on the surgical services, uh, including uh, the quantity of cases that are done at San Leandro, which are expanding, as well as the expansion of the type of surgeries being performed there, uh, namely uh, orthopedic uh, surgeries, uh, which are slated to begin uh, sometime in July with some infrastructure updates. Uh, there's uh, a protocol for a comprehensive and team approach to urgent airways. This is outside of uh, any code blues or crashing airways uh, for after hours and, and overnight uh, when we don't have uh, uh, specialty services on site such as the uh, intensivist or anesthesia. Um, and uh, the ED will probably be playing a bigger part in, in, in that. Um, there uh, was a communication regarding critical care transports between facilities uh, uh, in case there are delays in getting critical care transports and how to utilize the 911 system, which was previously closed off to the inpatient units. Uh, and that has been made, uh, there's a protocol now in place uh, put in by the Alameda County uh, EMS. Um, the last item on the quality and sustainability pillar is that San Leandro will be undergoing its uh, pediatric readiness survey tomorrow, uh, starting at 8 a.m. Uh, and this is part of the Alameda County Pediatric Readiness and Surge Project, and it's led by Alameda County EMS and UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital. Um, and there will be simulations, and it will go on until 2 p.m., and we'll get feedback on how we did and, and areas where we can show more improvement. There's been a lot of work done on pediatric readiness in the past year, um, and so hopefully this will this will add add to that. Um, in terms of the staff and patient experience, uh, congratulating San Leandro on their culture safety response rate of 97%, a top mark in the system. Uh, still very proud of that. And then uh, on the uh, other end of the spectrum, there were monitoring trends of staff and patient beds. Uh, and delays in moving patients to the medical floors, and a notable increase in ED boarding, especially over this past weekend, uh, which has uh, trickle-down effects to the EDs uh, across the uh, system and probably across the larger Bay Area. Um, and so uh, apprehensive about the impact of that, uh, both on our physician and uh, the nursing staff who are working. Um, Last item I wanted to mention was a bridge clinic update that I had uh, promised. Um, so uh, ED consults are happening and ongoing. There's substance use navigators in person at San Leandro and they do video visits at Alameda. The clinic is currently in the process of hiring 
new staff, uh, both physician and advanced practice providers, um, with one physician hired uh, slated to begin sometime in October. So uh, both consults for ED and inpatient are, are anticipated to start by uh, late summer 2023. And uh, the timing is mostly dependent on uh, making sure they're adequately staffed. Um, so that I think is overall good news. Uh, once that's up and running, it will, of course, uh, bring you all an, an update. Um, with that, uh, ends my report, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Question. Go ahead. Um, what pediatric services are offered at San Leandro Hospital? So no inpatient services. These are all um, emergency department uh, services uh, and to make sure that we are able to essentially uh, address any pediatric emergency. Um, and uh, stabilize and transfer, uh, no, ad no admission. Okay, do we have uh, pediatricians on call at the hospital? We do not, unfortunately. But emergency physicians uh, are uh, trained as uh, part of their training to address uh, pediatric emergencies. Uh, and then whatever uh, conditions that might need a higher level of care will have to be transferred out. Any other questions? Dr. Sali, thank you for that really rich report. I um, know that you've been preparing for the uh, pediatric readiness for months now. And so, uh, you know, all our wishes for the survey tomorrow. Uh, hope that we that goes successfully. In terms of the ED boarding times and things, are you are you being resourced and supported to kind of see what would, what would be? Is it a weekend thing that is, or uh, are there other structural uh, issues that that that, uh, that might be contributing to this? Uh, I, I, majority of these are uh, inpatient. I know that Highland was hit hard this past weekend in the ED with the number of bed closures uh, that because they were understaffed for the weekend. Uh, I don't think I'm uh, well equipped to answer the question as to what the what the uh, roadblocks and challenges there there are in that regard. Uh, I'm just bringing to light the trend that we're seeing and uh, the impact that it's having. Thank you, and I hope that you know our operational and uh, other leaders will be able to ensure that uh, your voting times are not increasing, and this is not a trend. Um, also, um, since you, uh, San Leandro and Alameda Hospital have a lot of um, co uh, you know, coordination amongst yourselves from as chief of medical staff from that angle, like what, are, what is uppermost on your mind in terms of how you can do your best work? What is in terms of resourcing support? Uh, I have to say, uh, today, again, uh, the staffing has come forefront. Um, working in the department clinically, uh, I, I, you know, there's there's nothing that's more um, concerning when we can't move patients out of the ED or there's not any room to see those patients. Um, you know, from my perspective, that, that that's a challenge. Uh, I think another challenge that the system generally has faced is uh, uh, sort of access to specialty consultants, especially at the community sites at Alameda and San Leandro. I think there's been a lot of great work done in this regard, and we've, we've come a long way in the past two to three years. 
um, and there's more work uh, uh, that's uh, to follow. Uh, and actually, exchange is happening via email uh, that I was just looking at with regards to uh, procedures for same day at Highland and that, and then back. Um, I think transport between the sites will continue to be a challenge, and I don't think that's going to improve anytime soon. Um, boy, I could I could list a whole slew of uh, uh, you know if I had a wish list, but those those would be among the top. Thank you, Doctor Afsali, and I hope that you know those uh, concerns are uh, you know constantly on the radar of our CAO, or and and that those are in your monthly. MORs and things, these are being um, discussed. So thank you again. Thank you. Okay, moving on, um, we have our committee report. So I'll uh, invite uh, to give the update on the QPSC committee. Thank you, Madam Chair. On May 24th, 2023, the QPSC met in regular fashion and we did our standard work. We uh, reviewed quality data, we uh, approved policies and procedures and we had um, uh, some consent of uh, credentialing as well. The two, I guess, more key items for uh, the evening's discussion were first the article. As everyone knows, we, we discussed an article. The article that evening was entitled Relative Value Units and the Measurement of Physician Performance. This article was uh, chosen in the context of lots of discussions which are not happening around the organization on RVUs. And it was, it was a nice article in that it provided historical context to the development of RVUs, and then sort of current context of kind of where we are. So a couple of, you know, learning points for all of us. So in 19, the, this dates back to 1966. In 1966, the current procedural terminology, the CPT uh, coding system was developed to sort of standardize medical language. In 1989, the, the uh, Healthcare Financing Administration, the predecessor to CMS, started to use the CPT codes uh, to, to begin their kind of reimbursement schema. And then subsequently, just a few later years later, in 1992, uh, the, the development of the relative value unit uh, began uh, as, 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 a, as a methodology for reimbursement. So in context, a couple of quotes that I'd like to say. Number one, uh, this is part of the article. RVUs were designed to provide a rational approach to assessing the relative value of medical services. They were not intended to function as the primary measure of a physician's performance. Evidence suggests that when performance is measured by RVUs, the number of RVUs tends to increase. Dissatisfaction with this linkage has led some organizations to transition from RVU-based fee-for-service reimbursement methods and towards alternative payment methods that limit the incentive for more care and create a focus on providing better care at lower costs. Um, it, it concludes, while it's understandable that health systems need a mechanism to match the amount of work with the required number of clinicians, RVU should be only one component of the assessment of clinician performance and not the primary one. So I, th I thought it was a poignant article. It's in there, trustees, for you to reread. The second marquee thing that we had was, it's actually on display for you this evening. Uh, the quality committee had a nice discussion about the forecasted 2324 uh, TNM dashboard uh, for quality, and that's all in here for everyone's approval, and uh, that's the product of it. So with that, I'll close my report. Any questions? Thank you. Comments? Thank you. Um, 
Yes, we had a really good discussion on that. And I think one of the things that we all agreed on that RVUs are not the only measure and that the there were really good items in the bibliography of the article that you said where there were uh, many other, there were, there were studies too that paying, uh, you know, how RVUs aligns with most how hospitals are paid for professional services uh, and that they are accounting for acuity and complexity and that, you know, they, uh, and usually that, uh, that even though it might not be the perfect system, it's something and that we do need to have some measures and while we are working towards, we need to, we need to be able to have through the employee life cycle of, on of recruiting, onboarding, uh, professional development, compensation benefits, performance management is part of a very important part of the whole employee life cycle. And hopefully collaboratively, we'll be able to find spaces. There were actually very good articles. Yeah, and, and we also, as part of that, I launched, uh, I, we asked on the Safety Net Institute, we have uh, like, what are other peer hospitals doing? The best way to do it is to find out, you know, peers, what our peer hospitals are doing. So there are, um, <coughs> Dr. Donovene is on that list as well. Uh, responses coming in there as well. Thank you. Um, Finance Committee, Chair mm -hmm. Fox. Thank you. Finance Committee met on June 7th, but we go today. Um, we also had read an article. Uh, that was distributed. Uh, this was more of a macro, uh, uh, macroeconomic article rather than uh, RVUs, but uh, it was meant to update the committee on something we knew was going to happen as of the as of the end of the pandemic, which was that Medi-Cal uh, and Medicaid nationally recipients were going to have their eligibility renewed or reviewed. Excuse me and that uh, we're gonna see large numbers of people losing their Medicaid eligibility uh, because of changes resulting from the end of the pandemic. So the article that we had read was uh, entitled hundreds of thousands of lost Medicaid coverage since pandemic protections expired. This was from the New York Times. Uh, we didn't have a lot of discussion on it, but the, uh, the main question is, uh, has this started in California? And uh, we expect it to start in California uh, July 1st, beginning of the new fiscal year. Uh, I, I think we have one third of the population in California, which is roughly 13 million people are covered by Medi-Cal slash Medicaid. So if we were talking about hundreds of thousands nationally before California starts the process, we're gonna be in the millions probably by the end of the calendar year. So. That's what's happening on a macro level in healthcare uh, across the nation. Back to AHS, um, uh, Kim Miranda's report was as of year to date, April, and this is uh, a month more than we talked last night with the supervisors uh, in our meeting yesterday. 10 months of the fiscal year in the books. Uh, our year to date operating revenue is $118 million uh, above budget, 12% favorable variance. But our year-to-date operating expenses are $123 million above budget, a 13% unfavorable variance. And most of that $123 million, $104 million of it is labor. And of that $104,000 variance, $60 million variance, excuse me, 
Of the $104 million labor variance, 60 million of it is registry. So the net of those two uh, things is that our net income is $5 million behind budget, 14% unfavorable to budget year to date, 10 months. But our EBITDA adjustments, thanks to some of the pension uh, adjustments that were made, are $4.5 million over budget. So year-to-date EBITDA is within 700,000 of budget at the end of April, and that gives us reason for optimum, optimism that we're going to uh, achieve the EBITDA budget. Um, in terms of volume, trauma cases, outpatient surgeries, ED visits, uh, and physician RVUs are all above budget year-to-date, and those are and that supports our net revenue and margin, favorable variances. Also, uh, supplemental revenues are 60 million over budget uh, and 23, $22 million of that is measure A, which we talked about last night and QIP is 25 million. Uh, and with the strong collections in April on our supplemental programs, we've now uh, pushed the NMB to a positive, very positive uh, position at the end of April were $87 million favorable. Um, and so uh, that's a very strong uh, position for us. And the result of that is partly that uh, we'll, we'll see the curves uh, when our CFO reports, but I think what we're, you know, we're seeing is that uh, where the, the line of the end, the curve of the MMB was coming right up to the limit early next calendar year. Now it's a, there's a little bit of daylight there. So that gives us a little bit of, uh, hope that we won't get into a crisis next year. Uh, after the discussion on the financials, we spent most of the meeting talking about the budget. Um, and we'll have a similar discussion tonight. And then we had uh, two uh, contracts that came up for approval. And we'll have and those were both uh, were both passed by the Finance Committee recommending approval by the full board. And we'll have those later in tonight's meeting as well. Thank you, Chair Fox, for that um, detailed update. Any any comments? Thank you. So we'll move on to the item E, which is our consent agenda. And we have um, six items here. So the first is the approval of minutes from our May 10th. Um, board meeting as well as our May 12th uh, retreat. We have minutes from the HMG board uh, of directors meetings. We have system-wide policies, procedures, medical staff policy, which was the common company of you know, the HS and Alameda hospital medical staff. And then we have approval of contracts and finally the resolution approval of the 401H account. Um, do we, General Counsel, sorry, uh, do, we, sorry. do we ask if there's any clarification needed? Do we call a vote first and then add any comments? Or this, this, well, this is the consent. Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, if anyone has any questions on any of the items, we can pull them and approve the rest. Any any questions, any clarifications needed? Motion to approve the entirety of the consent agenda. Second. So you have a typo on the May 12th. It's not Wednesday the 12th, it's Friday the 12th. Friday the 12th. Oh, I do have one comment, but we can we can take the vote and then do the comment. Sure, if it won't change. I won't change anything. 
uh, could you please call the roll Trust, over? Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Chapman. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Obligacion. Aye. Trustee Sign. Aye. And Trustee Slendorio. Thank you. The motion does pass. Thank you. I had a comment. Oh, I was reading the minutes from the AHMG uh, board meetings, and one of the things that came up was that there was um, the uh, uh, there were question, there was a comment saying that we don't have AHMG on the agenda anymore on the full board meeting agenda, and I just wanted to bring clarity on that. Um, we uh, from January we've been working with. Uh, you know, have requested Dr. Akhileshwaran, Dr. Perez, um, James, uh, and uh, Dr. Tonabene that as a, as a board, we are in a strategic place and we really want to see how patients, how physicians groups are not coming to us as silos, but are coordinating across all of that and bringing to us, how are you doing service line? How are we doing quality? How are physician champions leading all of those in a more in our strategic plan? So the day we have like a more coordinated process coming, that would be great. As AHMG, because a lot of the discussions are on workforce rather than patient or quality or any of that, that the HR department is a really good venue for AHMG to be on the standing just like we have during our full board meeting, even our CFO and our COO don't get to do a verbal presentation. We of those of us who are not on these committees, we go listen to the recordings. We listen to our folks. So, and I know that at times as we are, uh, because we have so many different physician groups and we can, having them siloed. Today we have HMG, tomorrow let's get UAPD, next we have AIM and then we have UCSF. It's not, that's not, uh, it's not strategically right for us to have that kind of rotating siloed presence. So again, we will welcome you with open hearts, minds, arms, when you integrate and bring some, you know, bring that at the board level. Uh, we have a dedicated space for you at the HR level. And again, our calendars and schedulers are always there. So any ways that folks want to come in and participate in our meeting, give public comments, meet us, um, schedule meetings, uh, we are happy to do that. But I wanted to um, let uh, folks know that the reason that individually we've spoken to your leaders, but if the members are thinking about that, that's the reason why. Can I just ask you a question? Sure. Um, I appreciate all of that, and I think you bring up a good point that we have many members of our medical staff uh, who are not only in AHMG. And I wonder, inviting them in feels good, potentially moving that component to HR. How do we formalize any of this? What do you mean formalize? Um, like at one point, they were a standing agenda item, and now they've dropped off. Do we need to formally invite them to be with our HR committee? Do we need to do anything with the other groups? so that they know they have a form. I appreciate this and I wonder, because you know it does feel like a, a, a question around equity and representation. Yes. And the HMG staff, you know, they are the staff, but so are the UAPD staff. Mm -hmm. And other folks are contractors, but you know, they operate as 
side by side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody works side by side. So how do we just take it up as a discussion? HR chair, I would, uh, you know, uh, really defer to our HR yeah. chair so, to make sure. So, I, I mean, I welcome the discussion. I welcome um, any bargaining unit that wants to come in and have a conversation. I welcome that. But I also challenge the fact that it will be standing item on the committee because HR covers a lot of different other things. And so that being said, I'd like to take it offline and have more conversation before I make an actual official comment. Thank you. Madam Chair, I have a comment. Uh, uh, caveat here, I am a member of HMG. Yes, there are disparate groups, but all the disparate groups, it's the only group that in their bylaws has a direct governance reporting structure to this board. Mm -hmm. That's what's different for HMG. In, it's a bylaw-driven governance structure reporting directly to this board. Thank you for I, that clarification. Yeah. And we have, so let's think about like how we might do <coughs> that on a, uh, because we have two boards. We have the Healthcare for Homeless Co-Applicant Board, which gives us the FQHC status and lots of money because of that status. So these are the two boards. How do we make sure that in the in that that we have um, in the committee um, space as well as at the full board space? Um, thank you for that. Duly noted. Does that? Uh, make, and we will work with both our committee as well as our uh, full uh, our board agenda. Question to clarification: Is the co-applicant board considered a reporting committee as well? They are, and uh, how? What yeah. is the way that they? We, they are. They are. They are so, trustee, the chair is right. We only have two committees which report. Sorry, two boards which report to us. So, yeah, yeah as long as we're governing our governance, then, then that's cool. Yeah, and we have had the. Uh, co we've had our co-applicant board come once a year, uh, always to the full board as um, in, in the past for all these years since HRSA has come in. But we'll we'll find make we'll find ways in mm -hmm. which to make this you know collaborative process. Yeah, I, I like it. It feels like a reorienting. Yeah, absolutely. Good discussion. Thank you for that. Um, we have uh, action discussion items starting now. Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to, will it be Dr. Tonobene for the TNM TrueNOP Metrics Dashboard discussion? Hi, good evening. I'll just say a few words to kick us off and then we will hear from Annette Johnson again to, to share where we ended up um, in terms of our recommendations for next year's True North metric dashboard. Um, I was really struck, Trustee Banerjee, by what you were saying earlier after the article. Um, and so I just wanted to, again, call out the kind of duality of knowing that um, we are constantly striving for improvement, that what we have and what we will share with you doesn't represent, though, the full universe of the experience of our patients or our health system but we're constantly trying to, to make it better every year. And I think one of the um, different, one of the items this year that we're gonna do differently is really formalize the structure under the TNM and really 
in order to drive improvement. And with that, I also want to specifically thank um, Trustee Bouquet and Trustee Banerjee for their input um, uh, in helping get us to this version of the TNM. And so with that, I will hand it over to Annette. Okay, great. If you could just let me know if you guys can see my screen. We do, Ms. Johnson, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so this is this year's True North Metric dashboard. You can see here that we have our quality pillar as well as our um, the steep intervention, which is coming from IHI. This recovers the high level categories of safe, uh, quality and safety that are recommended um, by Don Berwick and the IHI. We also have our metrics here in the middle, a baseline, a goal, our current month performance, our year to date. And then new to this last year was this trending of events. So we can see our data over months in, in relation to our goal. Um, we're continuing trying to improve not only our metrics, but also the structure of our dashboard. And so I'll be sharing with you some improvements that we're doing in relation to the format of the dashboard as well. So, with that in mind, we have to remember that the purpose of our Turner Metric Dashboard is to serve as a pulse check that allows um, everyone in our organization from the Board of Trustees all the way down to community members um, to assess how are we performing and are we hitting our strategic object objectives. So it is sort of essential that we follow principles that help us um, make sure that we're meeting those goals. So we have our guiding principles here, including alignment as well as accessibility, which is one of the areas that we're sort of focus, focusing in on this year. Are we writing our metrics up in such a way that a layperson can understand what we're measuring and why it's important to them as a patient or a community member here in Alameda County? The other area that we're really focusing in on improving this year is accountability, as Dr. Um, Betty mentioned before. Last year, we did have executives attached to each True North metric, but now we want to take it one step further. We want to really bring it down to where the work is occurring. So we're looking to put a team of people for each metric, an operational owner, an physician lead, as well as an, a staff member who sort of specially trains in performance improvement to help lead and guide um, improving and driving these metrics forward while keeping that um, keeping our direct staff involved because we know when improvement comes from, from the people who do the work, that that's when it really sticks and changes. So we're hoping that this mix of staff and accountability will really help us move the needle this new fiscal year. The other area that we're really looking to expand on, as you could see from our previous dashboard, we were sort of missing the third E, which is equity. So we're really, you know, last year we started to do deep dives um, once a month and UPSC to look at each of our uh, True North metrics um, and stratify those results. What we want to do now is move equity onto our regular dashboard, consistently stratify our measures, uh, every measures each month to sort of see the gaps between our overall performance and our sort of lowest performing subpopulation. So we can really see um, how are we responding to our efforts to improve and make sure that we're not leaving anyone behind as well as incorporating um, equity metrics directly on. So like we call it, we want equity in both a column and a row on our dashboard. So we'll show you that in just a few minutes. <laughs> this is our turn of metric uh, dashboard from, these are our metrics from last year. Um, and I have trended them over um, not only our current fiscal year, but the previous three fiscal years. So we can see overall how they're performing. Um, one of our metrics is harm. And you can see that unfortunately throughout the COVID pandemic, harms have increased. So that's one of the reasons that we're really working on that accountability to help us turn the tide now that we're beginning to come out of um, the COVID pandemic. The other um, 
we are going to remove uh, two access metrics um, related to uh, continuously signed patients, as well as the number of specialty patients and specialty care backlog. This is to make room for our equity measures. These metrics will still be tracked in the ambulatory service line and on their specific True North Mac dashboard. It's not going away. It's just not going to be on the, the system-wide board level True North metric moving forward. The other area that we're looking at is our 30-day um, read missions. If you take a look at the performance here, you can see that we've had steady improvement um, with the reduction of readmissions. Many of this is thought to do with the resources um, and community partnerships that have come out over the last couple of years. And we are performing very well here. So we would like to focus, um, instead of measuring overall readmissions, we went back and we stratified our readmission rates by uh, race. And we found that um, our African-American population, while improving, still remains higher than our other subpopulations and our overall rate. So we would like to focus in on this population to see if we can um, address their needs and figure out what we can do to bring their readmissions rate down to maybe even better than our overall system rate. Um, and then we are going to add two new measures here. Our, uh, in our equity rows, we're looking at um, the rate of patients that were screened for social determinants of health. So looking at um, food, housing, transportation, and safety utilities. Um, the screening will begin hopefully in January of 2024. We're, we're still building the infrastructure. In addition to that, not only are we looking at how many are being screened, we want to look at what is the positivity rate um, uh, of our patients um, who have these social determinants of need. So we can begin to use that in our planning um, exercises, as well as our equity analytics team. So this brings us to what our new dashboard will look like. What I wanna show is we have a couple of new additions. We're gonna look at our patient harm overall, but we are also going to give a high level breakdown by our service line so we can see um, how is our overall harm rate doing, but also how are we, is our harm rates doing in, our, in inpatient, skilled nursing, outpatient, and behavioral health. You can also see that we changed, um, while the metrics have been changed, we have changed their names and we've done this to write them in um, more common language so that people will be able to understand uh, the importance and why we're measuring them. We have also added, I talked about we had equity as a row, but we're adding it as a column. So not only are we measuring our current month and year-to-date performance overall, but we are looking at our worst performing category for race, ethnicity, or language. So we can really understand the gaps in our care and address those targeted populations. We will continue to trend our information or performance over time with a comparison to the goal, but we are also adding with for true visibility that, that accountability team that I spoke about earlier. And then we're gonna ask that those, those 10 members to give us each month very high level action plans so that we know that each one of these metrics has an action plan underway and will be driving forward um, improvement um, on these dashboards moving forward. This is the second half of that dashboard. This is a very quick presentation, but if you have any questions, please let me know. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Comments, questions? No. Uh, great work to the quality team. Uh, uh, great work to Trustee Banerjee for making comments. Uh, my comments were derived. I want appreciation to Trustee Fox, who at the uh, who at the retreat talked about you know speaking English to our patients. So doing this is the next iteration of trying to speak English to our patients so they can look at this board and actually have it mean something to them. You know, uh, inpatient associated harms, this sounds a little bit better than healthcare acquired patient harm, I hope, uh, but we'll see. So thanks to the quality team. 
I move approval. Second. Second. All right. Um, you got it back, sir. <laughs> All right, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Chapman. Aye. Trustee Steen. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Bodasio. Aye. Trustee Sign. Aye. And Trustee Spondario. Aye. The motion passes. Yeah. Huge thanks to uh, Dr. Donovan and the uh, and the quality team. This was a heavy lift, and it's just so in incredible to see how much deeper we've gone since our previous True North metrics. This is a lot of work, but the cascading and the, now we can measure. And when we measure and when we shine a light, that's when we can improve. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank All you. right, uh, next item is our budget. Uh, so I will invite um, our CFO, Ms. Miranda, to do the presentation. Okay, so um, this was our agenda. I'm not going to go through every one of these items. We've talked about it a lot already. So I'm just going to, to hit on the high points. And I want to start just reminding everybody that the Finance Committee did um, review this last week and is recommending approval of the budget. So here is our um, proposed budget for 2024. Um, we have about a 31 million or 2.3% increase in our revenues over our projected for this year. And we have about a 6.3 um, increase in our expenses. Overall, we're getting to a loss of net income of about 5 million. And we generate about 32.3 million of cash flow, uh, which is adequate to pay for the capital budget that we are recommending also in this presentation. This uh, slide is the waterfall. We basically try to put things into uh, the big picture. Um, and what we're trying to say here is that we're gonna have a reduction in supplemental revenue. So we have to make that up some way, right? Um, we did do that by adding some volume. Um, we also had to uh, increase the expense to our physician providers. Um, there's rate increases and there's also a lot more providers. And so we put a lot of information in the deck about that because it's very important, that investment, and um, it's in here for everyone's review. There's also revenue cycle improvements. Um, I'll touch on those more as I go through some infrastructure, mostly IT, some quality investments, the largest one um, being um, working on our length of stay and having patients in the correct inpatient or outpatient status and getting them transferred and billed correctly. Uh, we have uh, CPIs for our labor, uh, represented and non-represented, as well as supply increases. And then we have performance improvement, um, which uh, there's quite a few things in there that I will hit on during the presentation. So if I add that down, we get started at 49.4 and we end at 32.3. Um, we had a, a, a heady slide here. I think we've, we've gone through this unless, you know, uh, James or someone wants to walk through this again. What is the board's wish? Does any member of the board, everybody has been on the finance committee and seen this? Let's roll. Uh, yeah, we do. 
Oh, <laughs> we had a public comment before this item. Oh, okay. Um, can we pause for a second? Sure. And we know, we know. Miss um, Stebbins, are you? Uh, I'm here. I yes. can you hear me. We usually take public comment for an agenda item before the discussion of the item. So, um, sorry uh, for that oversight, but please go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, well, first of all, I want to compliment uh, the management team, especially Kim and her staff. For I, I've looked at a few of these budget packets over my years in the business, and this was really a well put together package. I know it's a lot of work. Um, tonight, I want to talk on behalf of the City of Alameda Healthcare District about the proposed, specifically um, fiscal year twenty four capital budget um, that you'll be voting on later tonight. Um, for the past several months, the district has been in discussions about the status of the HVAC renovation system. There was a study done in March, I believe, by AHS, by engineers and architects about that system, which is in very, very bad shape. The estimated cost of renovating that system, which by the way, supports the entire Alameda Hospital, although I'll talk a little bit about one program, surgery, <clears throat> um, is estimated about to be about $10.5 million, a large number. The district understands that uh, there may there needs to be a timeline probably for implementation of those renovations over a period beyond a year. Um, we've asked for that timeline and to date, uh, the district has not received that from AHS management. But I think mostly the district was very dismayed to learn that there is nothing included in the fiscal year 24 budget for this project, not even the funds necessary to start a portion of the renovation. Meanwhile, two, only two of five rooms in the operating suites, two of five suites in the operating surgery department are operational. And that's been going on for well over a year, largely due to air handling and humidity problems. Um, don't need to tell anybody that summer is coming. If it's like last summer, it's going to be very hot and it's likely that that, that capacity could go down further. We've been reassured by AHS that there are contingencies in place to back that up, like bringing in uh, part-time equipment and so forth or temporary equipment, but we haven't seen the details of that and the board is, is very concerned about that possibility. The proposed budget right now includes no capital items at all for Alameda Hospital. We do understand and it would help us to participate in the meeting with the supervisors yesterday that you are, AHS is required to fund $7 million a year uh, for county owned buildings. We also know in the current budget, there's $10 million set aside for um, the capital needs at San Leandro Hospital, which is the only building in the AHS system that is owned by AHS. But right now there is nothing, zero, in terms of capital needs at Alameda Hospital. We've attempted to help bring outside sources of funding for AHS. We know this is an expensive project um, and we continue those discussions with the County Board of Supervisors. So in closing, I just wanna say that Alameda Hospital's real property is owned by the district. That's always been clear, but the joint powers agreement with AHS does specify that AHS is responsible for maintenance and ongoing uh, upkeep of the facility until 2030. 
We're asking tonight that the AHS board uh, respectfully consider an allowance in the fiscal year 2024 capital budget for at least starting some of the HVAC, HVAC infrastructure renovation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ms. Evans. All right. So, uh, so the, uh, the budget items are um, being addressed based on our strategic plan and the pillars. Um, I'm not going to read all these to, through to you, but I'll just make a few comments on sustainability. You know, we need to find a way to pay for new programs and new costs and new regulations. So the idea is that we will find, keep improving, keep finding ways to pay for um, any new programs, any CPI, any of those external factors. So revenue cycle, we've, uh, uh, we've got uh, contra contracts in place with commercial payers that are gonna be about 2.7. We continue to improve uh, in regard to reducing denials at John George. Um, we've got volume increases. We've got a supply initiative. Uh, overtime reductions and reductions in registry. Um, this is just a trend of registry. Uh, the only thing I want to point out here is you can see in FY23 how high the registry got and how, although we're taking it down, it's still pretty consistent with 2022. And there is actually a rate increase uh, built into the registry this year. And it's an anomaly, which is apparent on this slide, where you can see that the nursing budget is really high and the registry all other is down, but it's just because of the timing when we pulled the budget and we um, built in the numbers. But I think it's uh, uh, not anything that we need to be concerned about. It might help us in our bridge plans <laughs> to uh, find money for other things that we might need to fund. Um, in sustainability, we've got some IT infrastructure here. Uh, a lot of this has to do with, uh, you know, security software protecting all of AHS. Um, we've got full years of telesitters, uh, and we've built in some efficiency. We're, we're basically saying we know that we've grown in FTEs. Um, our volumes are almost back to pre-COVID levels. We should be able to get some efficiency. And also workers' comp um, initiatives. Um, for staff experience, we've got COLAs built in for about 3%. That uh, represents all of our union contracts and our non-represented. So it's about $20 million total with the staff. Um, we've got employee recognitions in there. And we've also put money in for training, coaching. Uh, and we've got a full year of additional recruiters to really try to um, increase our own workforce and reduce that registry. For physician experience, we've got um, increases to the HMG, PSA. Um, uh, we've also got a lot of newly hired physicians, which we've got a slide coming up on. Uh, we've also got increases in contract positions. And here's the HMG slide. So we're going up to 105.2 million and 200.1 FTE. Oops, and real slow there. This is the physician employed and contracted. And you can see we are employing many more physicians. Contract is definitely going down. Um, this just gives you more detail on you know, the costs and by specialty. Um, this is the slide that I think is very important. This uh, 
this shows that, you know, AHMG has successfully recruited 38.5 positions and recruiting positions is not something that is easy to do. And this should um, definitely help improve our access and our volumes. Um, and community connection, we've got quite a few things listed here. Um, we're building back the foundation and the foundation is expected to cover their costs. Community Connect is small in terms of dollars, but it is big for the community. We've also got Eddie's House in here, which is providing much needed respite care. Um, we're expanding the substance use disorder bridge clinic. Um, we've, we've increased community outreach workers, and we're also creating a step-down unit for our patients in the IOP and PHP programs. Um, in regard to quality, uh, we're continuing to focus on length of stay and getting the patients in the correct status, inpatient, outpatient, reducing denials, trying to uh, do as much as we can to improve our throughput. We're doing a Kaizen event, and we want to maintain the multidisciplinary rounds that uh, we began this last year. We are increasing access in the clinic setting. We just looked at all the new physicians. Um, for our budget, we just said that those new docs will get to the 40th percentile. Lots of different ways for that to happen, but that's how we measured it. And we've got expansion of the dental clinic. And we've got the enhanced care management grant. Um, in regard to uh, quality, we are continuing with building out our infrastructure to measure and track uh, our performance. We just had that a great presentation. Um, and a part of this includes supporting heading and disaggregation of data. So lots of work happening there and it's being supported by a lot of analysts. We've got the physician quality dashboard being led by Alameda Health Medical Group. We've got some consulting um, dollars for that. We're continuing with our biomed. We are going for our Highland Stroke certification and we are um, having the San Leandro OR uh, move to a 75% block capacity. 80% is considered like a stellar program. So that's a, a pretty good improvement there. Just a comment. Yes. Um, the committee had asked uh, administration if in, if in presenting the budget, in addition to presenting the financials, which we're gonna see more of in the next several slides, but. Um, the team could present uh, the impact of the budget on our actual operations and and how it ties into the strategic plan. So what you've seen in the last several slides is, is probably the most qualitative presentation of a budget that I've seen ever. So just want to express some appreciation for that. Usually the uh, what you see in a budget presentation is a slew of numbers and the strategic plan stays on a shelf collecting dust. But uh, we're walking the walk. So. Thank you, um, Chair Fox, for bringing that, that it, how, how this is really aligning with that, with that strategic plan. So here's our, our financials. And I'll just make a few comments on these slides. So we do have a CDM, that's a price increase of 3%. We've got the um, additional volume in here. For inpatient, outpatient is offsetting. Uh, professional fees are increasing. We've got um, you know, lots of patient days and clinic visits. 
for net revenue, we went ahead and did a separate slide because we wanted everyone to understand this because it looks at the surface that our collection ratio is going down. That means we would be collecting less per dollar charge. However, um, if you look at where we started at 18.6 to where we end 18.1, and you add in all of these improvements to the revenue cycle, we actually are increasing our collection ratio quite a bit because we, when we have a, a, a CDM increase, a price increase, we don't get paid more by anyone except for people that pay a percent of charge. And that is only less than 8% of our population. So that's mostly our commercial payers. So you would expect when we increase our charges 8%, that we would dilute the collection ratio. As you can see, we are not because of all of these um, revenue cycle improvements. And in fact, the collection ratio is going up by 0.3. Yes. Right. Yep. Yes. And uh, this is the, the supplementals. And I, I started out with that hit that we were going to take. Uh, so we're you know ha having to have to <laughs> figure out how we're going to, um, to cover that. Uh, so in this slide, a couple things worth pointing out are the uh, measure A dollars. Uh, we're increasing that by 6.3, so that's offsetting some of the um, decrease in the supplemental. And we're also seeing an increase in other operating revenue. And some of that is um, we have gone back and scrubbed our claims and realized we didn't get paid appropriately from commercial payers. And so we're going after it and we're fighting for it in the courts. And we've been doing this now for the last at least 18 months to two years. We're getting close to settlements. And so that's driving up the other operating revenue, 7.5 million. Here's our payer mix and reimbursement. There's not a lot of change here. All this is really saying is the commercial um, payers do pay us quite a bit more than any of our other payers, but they're only represent 8.1% of our payer mix. And that's up Promising a little bit from the ER level two EPA. Here's five the different um, supplementals. And I think ER we've talked about two this EPA before. Five Here's the measure A we just talked about. And then in regard to expenses, they're going up 82.1 million. Most of that being in labor. And again, most of that being the COLA increases and some additional FTEs. <laughs> There's the uh, labor slide in detail. You can see we've got uh, an increase of 39 FTE current year. And registry being decreased 30.7 million. So we've got a rate increase of 12.5, but we are reducing 43.2 in registry costs and hiring our own staff. And then this is just the trend of labor and FTEs. And I want to point out at the bottom, I, I've uh, been putting that uh, the generally or the GASB um, adjustments. So with our retirement plans, we do a non-cash accrual of future liabilities, and that can be positive or negative, and it can significantly change our compensation ratio. So I just put it here so that people know that. Um, here's the FTE to adjusted discharges. So you can see we're not quite back to 2019 pre-COVID levels. We've been building back, absolutely. 
our FTEs have grown. I think all of us would agree that we needed to grow FTEs in some areas. Uh, and I want to point out in 19 and 20 is when we were capitalizing um, labor for EPIC. So the gap between the red and the blue is a little is a little overstated. There's about 83 FTE capitalized. And then this slide was changed. So um, for the record, we're going to um, want to have this version be put in the record. Uh, I did have to change this. We did have an error. We were missing a seven in 2022 EBITDA. Um, so we did make that correction. Um, as many of you may know, we had a pronouncement change this last fiscal year, which requires us to record lease expense as amortization. And uh, we retroactively adjusted our financial statements. So this, this cash flow represents what our final audited financials state. However, in the very beginning, there's some differences because of this change. And we didn't try to change it. And it has to do with the fact that internally, our systems cannot go back, reopen a year, and enter an audit adjustment. We just are not able to do that. So rather than um, worry about it, I'm just telling you, our FC was based on what happened before the audit adjustment, and this is after. It's very minimal change. So what this is telling us is that um, we've got an adjusted cash flow. It's got a previous years, and we also included 25 and 26, which were from the Huron strategic plan that they gave us. Um, and you can see budget 24 there in the middle. Um, so we're going to have 47 million six in cash flow coming in. We have to pay for Epic. We need to pay for our capital outlay. We're asking for 30.5 million, which is the next set of slides. We have some other funding sources that we believe will come in this year for FY24. And then we show all the county transactions. So what happens here is um, we uh, turn over the money that we got on our cost reports that was to fund the county owned buildings. And we do it two years in arrears because uh, you know we have to file our basically our tax return then it has to be reviewed and then we finally know exactly how much we need to transfer to the county so there is a two-year lag on that we've paid over in 23 33 point well basically 34 million and we're estimating 8.1 this year and 8.1 in the next years it usually runs between eight and nine million and then the capital reserve reserve fund was a funding mechanism to pay for epic so we transfer seven million, and as long as we meet the terms of the agreement with the county, then they will transfer it back to us so that we can fund Epic. Our net negative balance, which is our line of credit with the county, is there in the dark blue, and you can see we plan to be in a receivable position unless we have to pay the prior year recoupments that are shown at the bottom. Um, I think we've brought those forward uh, many times. They have not changed in the last year, and I have no new information to share. So then that brings us to our capital plan. And this is what we're asking for is to spend $30.5 There are 15.5 in carry forward requests that have not been completed. And then there's a new request of $10.99 And then we have a contingency fund of $4 million which can be used during the year for anything that comes up. 
The next slides just sort of give you a mix of the types of things that are in there. And we do not have by entity here. That is something we could add to this deck. We did have in previous years by entity. Here are the descriptions. Here's the carry forward items. And here are the new requests, at least the large ones here. And this is additional capital that we're gonna have this year for the county owned buildings. So Mark Fratsky has been working with Kim Gassaway with the county and they have developed this list and we will be starting on making these improvements, which does um, significantly, significantly add to the amount of capital that we're spending in this next year. Quick question. After seeing the priority one, two, three, four yesterday with the Board of Soups, I appreciate this itemized list. How did those compare? Um, so all of these belong in one of those broad categories they presented. Um, I can't tell you which ones Kimberly put it in, but they, they we could do that in, in next month's presentation if you'd like to see the kind of that presentation in <coughs> years with this. Now, she did say yesterday this list is dynamic because this is the original list we came up before Swinnerton was hired. And after they're hired, they come in and do that assessment. And we may find that there's things that won't be on this list and things that are added to the list. So, so is this the 2019 or is this the 2023? This is this is 23, 24. This is I know fiscal year, but that Swinnerton list, it was like they oh, hired oh, in that was, Yeah, they started the assessment that assessment began. Yeah, they started that assessment way before, I think it was five, cool. four, five years ago. Yeah. So much of those prices have escalated. And she right. said, uh, you know, they That's escalated really the prices. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the the actually the best thing might be is when Swinnerton's done their assessment to come back to the board finance committee and present you with their findings and what that cost will, how much they'll have to tap out this year from that capital budget. And one of the other things that was discussed, kind of just bringing to our notice here was that President Miley also suggested that what about Alameda Hospital, what about others? And in uh, Ms. Um, Gassaway, Kimberly Gassaway's uh, presentation, she had talked about this P3, which is like the kind of financing plus things. And so after the meeting, I chatted with her to see, you know, what might, how might we also explore some of those? Yeah. Because we are thinking we are, you know, um, we are determined to make sure that today and now patients quality patient care is not being deferred not being delayed not being compromised what do we need to do so um uh, ms Stebbins, just to let you know that there are uh, you know there's leeway within this as we think about you know how and it's uh, because of emerging issues as yeah. as they as you see that they come up Energy. A couple things on that. Next month at the Finance Committee, I'll be presenting the uh, uh, incremental plan to replace the 10.5 million. In the meantime, we met last week, James and I and Debbie and Dr. Deutsch um, with trustee or with Board of Supervisor Tam. And so that's kind of 
getting the ball rolling on is there another way to fund the ten and a half other than this incremental build over seven years? Mm -hmm. So more to come on that. But we do have Kim mentioned the four million dollar contingency. We never spend all of the um, the carryover. There's opportunity there, and there's also an opportunity to shift items if we need to. So I'm I'm confident if we have to make adjustments with our capital budget through this year, we can. Thank you. All right, so this brings us to the budget risk. Um, we need to achieve the bridge plan um, performance improvement. There's 34.4 million in there, and I, I, uh, I have the slides in here. I'll, I'll point out just the large ones in a couple of minutes. And we need to manage our length of stay closer to industry standards. Um, it's, uh, we, we're, we're investing a lot in this area, and we, uh, we really need to move it, because if we've got someone in a bed, and the bed, we need to pay for that care of that patient, but we're not going to get additional revenue if they're outside of the acuity models. So we need to get closer to, uh, to where we should be on our length of stay. And we need to achieve uh, our sustainability goals, which include the volume, reductions in OT and flexing, physician productivity and right sizing to patient volumes, and covering necessary call requirements. We really need to reduce the re registry because the registry cost is just skyrocketed. We have um, we have this wish list, this, re this request list, and there's some stuff on there that we need to fund. We don't have a way to do it now. So the budget just, just oversight the committee. Just on these items that Kim was talking about, um, I think the finance committee feels that hopefully we won't get it all done in the first quarter of the year, obviously, but we need to get a fast start toward seeing some improvement in these areas. That is key. Because if we're sitting here in November and it's all ahead of us, chances of making it, I think, is you know, really diminished. Thank you. Uh, so the Budget Oversight Committee is going to be challenged because they're going to have to manage leader expectations during the year. We've got all kinds of initiatives, things to take funding and people and it's going to be a challenge to determine you know, how best do we you know prioritize and get this stuff done and the other point i want to make is we have approved capital items that make up more than two years of our typical funding so next year it will be very difficult to add any new items to the capital budget. <coughs> One, one commentary on travelers. I just got the late, latest month data. We went from 279 RNs to 216. Okay. So we're making progress. That's just RMs, let alone the other contracts. So to your point, um, Alan, we're, we're moving. We're, we're going to hit the ground running. For the LOS, yeah. For the length of stay, I mean, I think sometimes if you can get us a little granular data on like some is it that the discharge order is being activated like after hours weekends like yeah. are we consistent through the whole thing because like you said like yeah. each one that we keep <coughs> head in bed beyond what is medically yeah. required that is you know our throughput is impacted our uh, uh, you know, revenues are impacted yeah. by that. Trust, trustee, one comment on that, and, and maybe you could consider having us come with um, a 
discussion around throughput. There's been a lot of discussion on it recently, and we're building a steering committee, and we've got identified 11 initiatives. Okay. And I think it would be good for the board to get a feeling for all the work that's going on around throughput, and that has an impact on length of stay. So just a consideration. That would be great. I mean, I know that throughput, throughput, throughput uh -huh. is the issue we've been talking yeah, through. And, access, and it's right. not always FTE. It's like yeah. other things as well yeah. as FTEs, like yeah. what are the other elements that have people come here and like not be seen, leave without yes. being seen, wait for hours and hours and hours. All, what are we triaging? Are we doing things? Are we like, you know, so thank you. That would be very helpful. And, and, and also that will give us an indication at the board level that people are working together yes. through this, not yes. pointing fingers at each other. It's exactly. your fault. No, it's your fault. Yeah. But 10 years of being here, we see a lot of that happening. Yeah. And it's like, let's each own our part in this situation and do what we all have to do together. And just, uh, just what we built in here is an eight hour reduction for San Leandro and Highland. It's, uh, Less than that for Alameda. I can't remember off the top of my head. Eight hour reduction for every patient. That's what we're <coughs> building here. We get them out eight hours. That's that. So that's kind of what this means. And then um, I think we've gone through these before too. And these are the um, risk and the in supplemental funds. Uh, the biggest one being Medi-Cal enrollees being disenrolled because now there's the redetermination. Um, and then the changes due to COVID, we, we've talked about that. Also, the FMAP going away, it's going to go down each quarter. And then there's some other uh, items here that are a little further out. Uh, can I just, something I'm curious about. If we see someone that was, you know, previously disenrolled from Medi-Cal, is it possible to retroactively enroll them if, we could demonstrate, if they can demonstrate that they were eligible? So, um, we can get them reinstated, right? And if they're in the hospital, there's this thing, there's a special um, uh, special way we can get them Medi-Cal immediately. It's like emergency Medi-Cal. I don't think we can go back three, six, nine months. And I'll verify that. Uh, Tangerine here. Yep. Can folks hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you. Yeah. Uh, no, you cannot do retroactive uh, enrollment after someone's been disenrolled before failure to renew. But as Kim indicated, if someone is in the facility, you can do hospital presumptive eligibility uh, for that and then work with them to go through the Medi-Cal process. And we do have a committee that has been focused on the Medi-Cal redeterminations. So this is the request list and I shared this with you um, when we gave the status of the budget. This hasn't changed. Um, the Budget Oversight Committee is prioritizing and going to need to figure out, you know, what we can what we can afford and when. Um, and this is the bridge plan detail. I don't want to um, go through all of these. I think we've done it. Um, I know we did it at Finance Committee several times. Um, oops. There's only a few of these I want to talk about. So many pages here. Okay, so on this first one, those settlements. So those settlements are the 7.5 million I mentioned earlier. They're with uh, 
Uh, Sacklaw is our, our firm that's um, working on these. We've got Blue Cross, and then we've got Blue Cross Medi-Cal, and we've got HealthNet. Um, we've got the billing of observation hours, which of course means we need to get the outpatient status so that we can provide the observation service to bill it. And we've got um, ambulatory, so we've got 4.8 million there, uh, just because we've got more physicians and we're hoping that we can improve the access with the existing infrastructure. So that's the plan there. And the OR utilization is here, number 11 there at 2.3 million in the budget. And this is getting San Leandro to the 75th um, percentile block. And then length of stay is the big one. And this is the eight hours for every patient for um, Highland and San Leandro. And it is actually 4.8 hours for Alameda. And then the stroke certification at uh, 2.1 million, that's 88 new cases. So those are the big ones that we um, plan to hit on. So that's my presentation. Happy to take questions. Tried to go through it pretty quickly. I know we've talked about it a few times. Thank you. I mean, terrific presentation. Um, I think, uh, you know, some of the issues, uh, some of the continuing dialogue that we'll, we will have is that there is the budget and then there are some of the rolling things that we need over here. I will speak for, I saw that in the heady slide, we have like healthcare for homeless programs in cooperation of dental services. And I know that that is actually, uh, uh, a grant that is coming from the county, right, R rather than from us. So uh, I remember the words of Ms. Loretta, who is the, on the board of the co-applicant board. And one of the things that she said was like, with the uh, housing uh, <coughs> eviction moratorium gone, we'll have a people facing a homelessness cliff. With the expanded CalFresh benefits gone, COVID-related, people are going to face a hunger cliff. And then with the expanded Medicaid coverage gone because of COVID, people are going to face a health insurance cliff. So all these things are coming down our pipe. We know that, you know, we are not officially in recession and things, but like even the governor's revised budget is like being very, you know, we have to be prepared for that. And so when we see that the homelessness um, uh, incidents in Alameda County is going up like this, but our uh, spending on that has been like absolutely steady. Like how are we, uh, as we come through this, making sure that those who are most marginalized, those who rely on us at the safety net are being, um, so I, I uh, those are the kind of questions I think we have to see sometimes when we use the run rate it also exacerbates the inequities because if you haven't done it before, you won't do it now. And we just keep setting with that and who, which ones get funded then becomes. So I think the, as much as we are using our equity impact analysis, we have been, you know, 
internalizing it, it's still spotty in our use. So I think those are the questions. How, oh, how are we going to be able to make sure that those who are most burdened are being served by us? Those are uh, fair questions. Um, yeah, I, I think we've got, we've built in a lot of things. We did start with run rate, but I think, you know, run rate also annualizes a lot of things that we're doing. So um, we try to pull that out in the, in the heading slide, but I think we, we can look at maybe developing some financial metrics that, um, you know, maybe we can think through what might make the most sense and add those to our finance dashboard that we're looking at. Manage, I think, I think that we're becoming more sophisticated as an organization in terms of how we um, look at our data around disparities. And I, and I really believe that as we dig down into our data more and more, we're going to see where those inequities really are and come up with ideas of how to fix it. And I think therein that innovation around our data, it'll lead to how do we afford it? How do we, how do we do it? And we've got to find a way to do that. In this year's budget, if those ideas come up and or be willing to budget it next year, I mean, our patients are our patients, and yes. we can't leave um, our homeless and having yeah. having that. So we have to find a way. I think, and it might mean making tough decisions. But I think that being constantly vigilant about like mm -hmm. using our data and doing that. There are other things that you know some of the more uh, folks that are uh, some of the programs that serve the most vulnerable are now on grant fund or foundation-funded thing. I know that the Cancer Collaborative Pfizer grant is expiring <laughs> on 30th of September as of 1st October, colon cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, um, and the other one um, does not have some of the patient navigation and all of that. So some of these might be rolling things that are coming down the pipe for you because we just can't you know, close those things down. How are we going to do those? We don't see them in a line item over here, but if the foundation is not picking. These are the ones that are for the most acute, most you know, vulnerable of our patients. So, as a you know, as a board of our governance, like our obligation to those who face the greatest burdens is always like top of mind. Just the energy. I wish that you had raised that yesterday when we were with the people with the purse because you said it so eloquently tonight. And I think as we talk about the net negative balance and our ongoing funding uh, needs, you know, these are some of the things, yeah, we need capital expenditures, but we also have programs that are not gonna be funded. And we do have all of these crises that are probably gonna the same. Absolutely, yes. We love to have ongoing conversations with our, you know, this is not a one and done, but we have to just keep, keep advocating through the year, but thank you for Thank you so much. So I, I wanted to say that, you know, we have um, a social determinants of health uh, committee. And one of the things we started this year, uh, really before a requirement ended, launched in April, 
is uh, very systematically collecting um, social determinants data, uh, translating that into you know, what are called appropriate CMS codes, not only providing that to the health plans, which in turn provide it to the state, but we're going to be using it and analyzing it and developing monthly reports that give us a sense of, you know, is it food insecurity? Is it housing? Is it transportation? Is it domestic violence? What are all of the various conditions? And then more importantly, how do we partner with community-based organizations uh, to address what those needs are. We've been having a series of conversations really tied to the strategic plan on the development of a closed loop referral system so that when we are collecting this information based on self-reporting from our patients, we have a place to refer individuals. And more importantly, if we have with the closed loop referral system, we'll be able to see if those individuals have actually received those services. Um, and so that's something we're going to uh, be launching in the near future. And then secondarily, um, as you may know, we participate in the Alameda County Safety Net Collaborative, which is you know, our health plan partners, our community clinics, um, HICSA, and you know, we've had several presentations from uh, the county's housing department and city department talking about the range of things that they're doing to address um, housing, not only for the homeless population, but affordability across the board. And so I think it's important, we have felt, and the all the health entities that participate in this group have felt it's been important to receive this kind of information, specifically around the housing piece, because it helps inform our broader strategies <laughs> for this population, where to refer people and how to get them the services that they need. Just wanted to mention that. That's very helpful. Thank you, Ms. Burton. All right, did we call the- I have a question. Yeah. Uh, Kim, uh, has the, all the cost saving, lack of a better word, that we implemented with, with Huron recommendations, are they, I know that what recommendations have been fully implemented, but are there more to come? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, have we seen the full course of whatever savings we anticipated from uh, the Huron suggestions? So we were successful for revenue cycle, for supply chain, pharmacies, um, and those have been built in here and they are ongoing. Um, so we didn't, we didn't, we're not continuing with Huron as of now in this budget, so we don't have any any um, new projects built in here. I, I don't think that means we wouldn't consider, you know, using Huron again. Um, but the, we have built the savings. Okay, so you, have, you know, you answered my question. Was it that we've implemented all the recommendations? We've seen the savings. We will continue to benefit from the savings, and uh, and not a current anticipation of trying to go out there and find mechanisms for further savings or revenue enhancement? Well, we point. have quite a few built in here. Um, and we do have some consultants that we're engaging, uh, like uh, um, there's a like clinical intelligence, Dr. Brandage, those are helping us with the UN. Uh, we've got uh, all of those revenue cycle items that we had. Uh, so 
there's a lot of performance improvement in here. At this point, we think we can manage most of it internally with our own we've staff. Learned. I think we've, we've, our culture is changing, becoming much more accountable. Okay, thank you. Eric? Any further comments? I'll make a motion to approve the budget as presented. I'll second. Madam Cook? Um, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Chapman. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Lagassian. Aye. Trustee Stein. Aye. And Trustee Spandario. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Big job done. Congratulations uh, to this team. Um, excellent report. Um, all right. Next item, we have written reports that we have a really detailed one from our PACE team. Uh, please read. It's really good. We have our CFO report, of course, that we also went through. So with that, I think we are going to move into take a, take a little bit of a break, maybe five minutes, and then move into closed session. We can move into closed and then take a break. That sounds good. Uh, thank you, Chair Banerjee. The board will now go into close to consider the items of state on the agenda. I'll hand it over to uh, Trustee Albadassi on the Trustee McCann. Thank you. 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 Thank you.